Welcome to the Oasis Church Podcast. We're so excited that you join us today. And wherever you're listening from or whenever you're listening to this, we hope that you are encouraged. And if you ever want to join us in person, you can always join us at 10 a.m. at 197 Imperial Boulevard in Hendersonville, Tennessee. But we love you and we hope that you're encouraged today. excited today. We're going to be week two of our series called The Gift. Come on, y'all say The Gift. Last week we started this series and we were kind of taking a focus on the gifts that the wise men brought Jesus. And so last week we talked about frankincense. Come on, y'all say frankincense. It's not Frankenstein, it's frankincense, all right? Halloween was a couple months ago, all right? We were frankincense. And we talked about how frankincense was an oil that was used, essential oil. Shout out to all the essential oil people in the room. Uh, but it was a, like a Swiss army knife of essential oils. It could do anything. And, uh, and it, But it was also used in a spiritual sense. It was used uh, that so that people, uh, the, the priests would dip a stick in this oil and they would light this incense. And this incense would rise to God. The smoke would rise to God. Remember I had the incense, I walked down the aisle and it would rise to God and it would symbolize the prayers of the people rising to God. And so these gifts, not only were they very practical for them at the time, but they were also really spiritual. And frankincense represented Jesus's priestliness and how Jesus would be our high priest. And they were really prophetic gifts. And so this week, uh, we're going to talk about something else. But before we do that, I want to start this message. And I want you to think about uh, what you see when you think about the birth of Jesus. All right. So if you need to close your eyes, you can. But when you think about the birth of Jesus, what do you see? And you probably envision something that you've seen at your grandma's house about a thousand times, just like a nativity set. How many of y'all have one in your home or your grandma has one in their home right now? Come on. Everybody, right? We don't have one in our home. Do y'all have one in your home? All right, so your parents don't got one in their home. So they do? All right. So my grand, our grandparents in our life have a nativity scene in theirs. But you, you typically think, right, you, you think of Mary and Joseph. And Mary, she's so beautiful. She, she looks so put together. Uh, and she's holding the sweet, like, baby that looks like it's about nine months old. You know what I'm talking about? It's real chubby. It probably has been walking already, right? Like, And then you have Joseph, who, I mean, he just has a smile on his face and his head slightly tilted to the side and he's looking down upon his wife and his child and it's just like man this is just the most beautiful family of all time then you got the animals right you, you got the donkey that Mary and Joseph rode to Jerusalem on, or to Bethlehem on and uh, that's sitting there you might have like a sheep or two in the nativity set and then if you're culturally uh, you know accurate you might have a camel uh, they rode camels a lot back then you might have something like that then you got the wise men right you got how many wise men are at the nativity scene three, right? Because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they're, they're there. They got the long beards. Uh, they look like people that live, you know, down in the, the woods of Tennessee over here, right? Like they got the beards. They look important. Uh, and then you got the structure that they were in, right? Like it, it typically, it comes to a point and on, the, on that point there's either an angel, you know, blasting light from its chest or there's a star up there. There's something up there, right? And, and then there's little baby Jesus. And and he's just sitting there. He, he couldn't be cuter. He's not crying. Uh, he, he's just, I mean, he looks amazing. He's the cutest little thing you've ever seen in your life. And that's typically what we imagine when we think of the Christmas story. 
But let me just tell you, that probably couldn't be further from the truth of what it was actually like when Jesus was born, right? Um, I don't know uh, if you know this, but they, the reason why they were in Bethlehem is because they had been commanded by the king to go to their like their town that their family originated from. And so there were a lot of people in Bethlehem at this time. And so they're most likely in a cave that's full of not just the normal amount of animals, but a lot of animals because there are a lot of people that are in Bethlehem at the time. It was so full, in fact, that there were no places for them to sleep. That's how many people were there. There was no room for them in the inn, right? And so they're, they're most likely in this cave. And I'm also, um, I, I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but whenever you have a baby, I wouldn't, the, the word silent doesn't come to my mind whenever you have a baby. Uh, I don't know if you've ever witnessed a childbirth before, uh, but it's most likely this was not a silent night. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we think of silent night. This was most likely not a silent night. And, uh, and also, I don't know if you know this, uh, if you've never witnessed a childbirth, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, uh, I actually have a video I want to show you. I'm joking. I'm not going to do that. But... <laughs> But uh, one thing I do know from experience is childbirth is not known for being the cleanest of things that you can do as a human. Uh, and there was most likely, it was not a silent night. Um, actually, I believe the Bible, spoiler alert, kind of reads like Jesus was born during the day uh, because it says later that night is when the angels appeared to the shepherds. And when the shepherds got there, he was already born. And uh, so he may have actually been born during the day. It wasn't silent. It most definitely wasn't clean. There was probably several, there were a lot of bodily fluids on the floor. You know, there, like I said, not clean. I'm not going to get any more detail than that. Uh, but I, also, I don't know if you know this, but if you experience, uh, we've experienced this. Uh, Stephanie has experienced it more than I have, admittedly. But when you have a baby that's a non-cesarean delivery uh, without an epidural or any pain meds, it's loud, it's gruesome, it's tiring. Stephanie, I remember, I'm not going to share anything crazy, okay? Uh, but... I remember when she was, when it was about time to like push, she was having contractions and literally f sweating like crazy. And in between contractions for like 15 seconds, she would literally fall asleep. It was bizarre. I'm like, are you okay? You know? And I, I remember going over to her, I said, what can I do for you, baby? She says, never do this to me again. That's what she's telling me, the, the last one. So uh, we're not gonna have any more kids, unfortunately. Uh, but I, it's just very different, right? Like, and so this idea of Mary in a nativity scene been all put together and Joseph is sitting there just smiling. That probably did not happen, right? Like he was probably thinking, oh my gosh, this baby is coming and I got to, okay, uh, what are we going to put this in? He probably found this thing. He's a carpenter. He's used to being creative with his hands. And he probably was like, I think that can also be a bassinet. And he dumps the food out of this feeding trough, fills it with hay, fills it with grass. And all of a sudden we have the baby. I mean, and, and, all, and we put the baby in there, they wrap it in cloth. And I mean, this was probably a chaotic moment. And that just kind of puts in perspective a little bit what was going on that day. And something else that's interesting is the Bible actually talks about how the wise men actually came and they visited Jesus, but they were actually living in a house at this time. So Jesus wasn't even a baby when the wise men got there. They were, he was actually, a lot of scholars believe that he was between 18 and 24 months old. How many people in here right now have a kid that's between a year and a half and two years old? Come on, somebody raise your hand. This changes the perspective of the wise men coming to worship Jesus, right? I don't know if you've ever been around a two-year-old. Uh, we had the opportunity of having three two-year-olds in our house. 
And we were two years apart and everything. So when we had a two-year-old, we had a newborn. And so two-year-olds uh, are the worst. Okay, I just want to say it. They're the worst. And, uh, and before you have kids, you'll see a two-year-old at their grocery store that's freaking out. And uh, all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? Like, I can't believe that parent would give that two-year-old a screen. When I have kids, I'm never going to give my kid a phone. I'm never going to try. And guess what? The second you have a two-year-old and you're in Kroger and they're losing their minds, you will get your phone out so fast it'll make your head spin, right? Because why? Because you learn at an early age. And when they're at a young age, you never negotiate with a terrorist. You just don't. And you just give them what they want. And you're like, do not embarrass me. At, 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 I remember one time we had a kid freaking out at a restaurant in Florida and this lady had the nerve to come over to me. She put her head this close to mine and said, I'd appreciate it if you took your crying child outside. I have a migraine. And I looked at her and I said, I wanted to just lay into her. And I said, ma'am, I'm sorry you have a headache. But I'm not going to do that. You know, you shouldn't be out if you have a migraine. And uh, I remember, like, maybe she just never had a two-year-old before. But it changes the perspective, right? The wise men coming to a two-year-old. And he's probably banging on the table, freaking out a little bit, crying, wanting food, wanting to play, got all this energy, just learned to walk, and he's going crazy. And the wise men show up with these gifts. And they bow down, and they worship a little two-year-old. I mean, can you imagine? That probably made Jesus be like, man, the man, right? Like, he probably, you know how two-year-olds are. And Jesus was a human. It changes the perspective of the wise men a little bit. Well, here's what the Bible says about the wise men's encounter with Jesus. It says this in Matthew chapter 2. It says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They had come a long way, and they finally found where Jesus was. Next verse. And it says, they entered the house and they saw the child was with his mother. Most likely Mary was, when it says with, she was most likely nursing the child uh, with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, in our day and age, these seem like weird gifts, right? Like nobody probably gave you gold bars on your birthday or at your baby shower. You probably got a diaper genie, wipes, diapers. I mean, like you got the snot sucker that we saw last week, right? Like you got this stuff. But back then, these were actually incredibly valuable gifts. They cost a lot of money. But also, they were very practical gifts. But beyond all that, these gifts were very prophetic as to who Jesus would become. And so this, and so last week when we talked about frankincense, that was prophetic. It was, they were unknowingly giving Jesus a gift that would prophesy as to who he would become. He would become our high priest. And so they gave him these things. And uh, next week or on Wednesday, we're going to talk about gold that represented Jesus being the king. But this week we're going to talk about myrrh. Come on, y'all say myrrh. Ooh, y'all are Southern. All right. Myrrh. Or sound like a bunch of pirates, all right? Y'all say myrrh. Myrrh. People aren't familiar with myrrh and what it actually is. But it's actually this gum-like substance that's very valuable. And it's actually mentioned 17 times 
in the Bible. Occasionally, it was used as an antiseptic. And so it was used to numb pain or to dull some pain. If you remember when Jesus was crucified on the cross, they offered him, right before he died, um, a stick that had a cloth on it that they dipped in wine mixed with myrrh. And they did that as a sign of mercy to just help numb the pain. And Jesus actually refused it because he was, his job was to come and to bear that pain and to become that pain uh, for us. But most commonly, myrrh was used as an ingredient used to embalm the dead. And so Jesus would have actually been embalmed with this after he came off the cross. Uh, he would have been embalmed with some sort of mixture of myrrh, um, and he would, he would have been prepared for burial using myrrh. And so this gift, it represents Jesus being the suffering servant, the suffering servant, or the Lamb of God who was born to die for the sins of the world. That's what myrrh represents. And so what I want to do is I want to take you to an Old Testament passage that talks about the birth of Jesus and how the whole plan for Jesus all along was to him to come to earth to suffer on our behalf. Welcome to church, everybody. We're going to talk about suffering today. But before we get there, I want to just ask this question. If I could right now predict right now and announce who next year's Super Bowl, the teams going to the Super Bowl would be, how many of y'all would be impressed? Come on. Oh, okay. What if I could also not only tell you who was going to be in the Super Bowl, but who would win the Super Bowl? Would that be even more impressive? Okay. What if I could do, you know, tell you who's going to go to the Super Bowl, who's going to win the Super Bowl, and then what the exact score of the Super Bowl is? How many of y'all be like, that's amazing? Okay. Uh, that is impressive, but it also could be luck, right? Like I could just luckily guess that the odds are against me, but l- luckily I could do that. What if football in the world were still around 700 years from now, and I could tell you the two teams that would make it to the Super Bowl, what the score would be, who the winner would be, and who the MVP would be? How many of y'all would be like, that's pretty amazing? That's, that's amazing. What we're going to read today is ex- kind of exactly that. There was a prophet named Isaiah who prophesied about Jesus coming 700 years before it actually happened. There's a prophecy in the Bible, and a prophecy in the Bible would talk about something that would happen in the future. And the Bible has hundreds of these, by the way, and not one of them has been wrong. Uh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that, by the way. If you're on the fence about God, he's not been wrong yet. All right, I just want to tell you, he's not been wrong yet. So, But uh, he prophesied 700 years before this happened, not in just generic terms, but in terms, in great detail, uh, he, he uh, prophesied what would happen. And so we're going to start looking at that. But before we look at that, we need to take a look at our problem because we have a problem in all this. And here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says, all of us, all of us, you, me, the nice lady at the grocery store that you met yesterday, we are all like sheep and we've strayed away. And we have left God's path to follow our own. All of us are like sheep. See, Isaiah tells us that, and unfortunately, that's not a compliment. Okay, that's not a compliment. I know sheep can be cute. They're fuzzy. You're likely wearing a piece of clothing right now that originated from a sheep. But this is not a compliment. Now, if Isaiah would have said all of us are like a lion, 
I'd be like, yeah, baby, come on. I like that. Like the king of the jungle. I got my mane, which my mane's falling out a little bit back here, but I got, I would have my mane. I'd be strong. Or maybe if he said something like, you're like an eagle. Eagles are awesome. That's why America has an eagle as its logo, right? Like we're awesome logo. I guess our national bird is what I should say. Ben Franklin wanted to be the turkey. Can you believe that? I'm glad we chose the eagle because the eagles are awesome. But he didn't say that. He said, we're like sheep and sheep. And what he's essentially saying is like, we're dumb. Like we, we, we are not smart. We're really dumb. We have a hard time thinking for ourselves. And here's the deal. You can train a lot of animals. You can train a dog. You can train an elephant. You can train birds. Like you can train some cats. You can train, right? Like not a, some cats you can train. But you can't train a sheep. Like you've never heard someone say, come over here and see my trained sheep sit. <laughs> that could have gone poorly. I recognize that. But I said it effortlessly, baby. Come on, y'all got to give it up. I said it effortlessly. That could have been bad. Y'all get it? Hey, hey. That was all a setup for the dad joke. That's what I'm talking about. I got, I got the thumbs up from Matt McNeil. That's all I need, all right, from the dad joke. That could have been bad, right? But listen, sheep, they're weak. They're witless. They're wayward, all right? Sheep are weak, witless, and wayward. Let's talk about weak for a second. They're actually defenseless. They don't have any defense mechanism. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have claws. Uh, they, and actually, if a coyote or a wolf comes to take a sheep, they don't, they're not even smart enough to understand, like, let's scatter so at least some of us survive. They actually huddle up together, and they're just like, take your pick, baby. We're all right here. That's what sheep do. They're, they're, they're so dumb. They don't understand, right? They're weak. They, they don't have amazing strength. They're not fast. Like, they, if you want to come get a sheep, you can come get a sheep, essentially. They're also witless. In other words, like, they don't think for themselves. They tend to kind of follow the crowd a little bit. Like, they, they, they don't understand that this sheep in front of me did something dumb. I need to not do that dumb thing so that I can live. And in fact, this is a true story. In 2005, in Turkey, 15 of these dumb sheep followed each other off of a cliff. <laughs> and you would think that, like, the first one went off, the second one went off, the third one went off. The, and you would think by, like, the fifth one, he'd go, hold on a second. <laughs> this is not looking good. I need to stop. But no, no, no. 1,500 sheep fell off the... No, no, 1,500, I'm so sorry. 1,500 sheep fell off the side of a cliff. The amazing thing is only 400 of the sheep died. And you know what? They were the first 400. The rest of them fell off and fell onto a giant pillow made of sheep. And they lived. It's a true story. They're dumb. Isaiah saying, you're a sheep. They're weak. They're witless. They're wayward. They just wander. They don't know how to find food for themselves. They don't know how to find water for themselves. They have like no instincts. They just wander around. Have you ever been to our house? You've seen one of our children who I'm going to remain nameless in here, but this child will just wander around the house. And at some point I'm like, you got to go somewhere else. Like you can't just wander around in here, right? Like, but that's what we do. Isaiah is looking at us and he's saying, listen, 
Like, you're like a sheep. It's not a compliment. He said, all of us, we're like sheep. We're, we're kind of, we're, we're prone to being attacked. And we're defenseless. We don't really think for ourselves. We kind of go with the crowd. We wander a lot. And then he, he continues on by saying this. He says, all of us are like sheep. We've strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and he was treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. And this was all 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. And if you've ever been hurt, if you've ever been mistreated, if you've ever been betrayed, left out, misunderstood, or criticized, Jesus understands what you feel. He understands what it's like to feel those things. Believe it or not. He continues and he says, He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with the deepest grief. He knew what it was like to just have the deepest grief. And actually, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we didn't even care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. By the way, the people that decided to crucify Jesus said that he had done these wrong things. And people thought that Jesus had actually committed a crime. He was tried unfairly. And they thought that he was crucified for his own wrongdoing. This was predicted 700 years before it happened. But he was actually pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole, and he was whipped so that we could be healed. This is what Jesus would do for us. This is what Jesus would do for us. But some of you, you look at that holy moment that happened a long time ago, and you wonder, what in the world does that have to do with me today? Like, I don't understand. Okay, great. That happened a lot. That happened 2,000 years ago. Like, what does that have to mean for me today? Like, why should I follow Jesus? Why is he worth following? Why should I follow Jesus? And I just want to tell you this right here. When you understand the magnitude of his suffering and the depths of his love, you won't just casually say that you're a follower of Jesus. When you truly understand what he's done for you, when you truly understand the suffering that he went through because of his love for you, you can't help but to be all in. Like you just can't help be but all in with Jesus. And so I'm going to try, I'm going to do my best to describe to you the suffering that Jesus had, that he went through because of his love for you. And I won't be able to do it justice. It's impossible to describe what Jesus has done for us, but I'm going to try. And we'll start in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the place where Jesus, he wrestled with God. He had a tough conversation with God. Some of you are having tough conversations with God 
God, why is this happening? God, why won't this person respond to me? Why, why, don't, why am I not feeling love from this person that should love me? Why, why, why am I experiencing this brokenness? Why is my family going through this? Why is my kid going through this? Like, why? And you're having these tough, God, tough conversations with God, but Jesus has been there. And Jesus tried to take his friends with him to support him, but they let him down. They fell asleep. And Jesus, he was all alone. And he asked his father, he says, please, God, please, will you take this suffering away from me? The Bible describes it as a cup. He says, God, will you take this cup of suffering away from me? Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. Jesus knew the pain that he was about to endure. People back then feared the crucifixion. It was an excruciating way to die. Jesus not only knew that, but he also knew that his relationship with his father was going to be broken. And he's asking God in this moment, he's alone. He's saying, God, please, would you just take this away from me? And there was no answer. And the Bible says that he began to drip uh, drops of blood from his brow. The, the medical term for this is hemosideriosis, siderosis, I'm sorry, hemosiderosis. And it's something that can happen to you when you experience extreme stress or extreme trauma. And your capillaries actually burst and your blood mixes with your sweat. So Jesus is in the garden. He's pleading, God, God, please. And the Bible says that Jesus said this. He said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Like, I, I want to die. Like, I just, I, he was... I mean, the lowest moment of his life almost. But then he declares faithfully, not my will, but thy will. Not my will, God, but your will. What do you want me to do? And then his friend comes, a person that he had poured hours, years of his life into. And his friend betrays him. And Jesus is arrested. And he's falsely accused. He's unfairly tried. And he was sentenced to death by crucifixion. And then they stripped him completely naked. And Jesus felt shame. Everyone's watching. He hadn't been beaten yet. And he's just, can you imagine? That's just embarrassing. Then they would take a crown of thorns. And they, they, these thorns are huge and thick and they're hard. And they put this crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And they were mocking him. He said, hey, you have a crown here. Let me, you should, you're the king of the Jews. Here, let, let's put this crown on you. They would mock him. They spit on him. They hit him. They pulled out his beard. If you ever have a two-year-old that grabs a hold of your beard, my gosh, it's like the worst, right? Like that's, But they did all this stuff to him. And then they would whip him 39 times. And on the end of this whip, there'd be like shards of, of sharp like pottery and ball bearings and, and rocks and stuff that was just designed to grab a hold of your skin and rip it off. And anytime they would hit his head, those thorns would just go deeper into his scalp and it was painful. Isaiah actually implies that he was beat so badly that he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Like he just wasn't even recognized, probably swollen and just gruesome and gross. Then after all that, he's weak, he's suffering, he's alone. They would give him a crossbar and it weighed about a hundred pounds. 
And I imagine it wasn't very smooth. It wasn't sanded. It's probably splinters getting all over the back of his sores. They put this 100-pound crossbar and they force him to walk a path that's about 650 yards long. And he carries his own crossbar to the place where he would be crucified. And that, that road is actually called the Way of Suffering. It was a common route used, by the way, in times like this when people would get crucified. So they take him to a place called Golgotha. They took nails. And they drove him into his hands and his feet. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but he would have to pull himself up to get a breath and then let it back down. He had to pull himself up just to get a breath. And eventually he, he's lost a lot of blood. He's weak. His shoulders most likely would dislocate to where it would be harder and harder for him to, to breathe. And he's hanging there in the heat of the day. He's naked. He's ashamed. He's fighting for every breath. And this was only the beginning. I don't want you to miss this. The most painful part is when the innocent one, Jesus, the one who never sinned, he never did anything wrong, he bore the sins of the world. The Bible says he actually not only looked like sin, but he actually became sin. He took on all of the sin of the world from every person, all the pain you would ever feel, all the sickness you would ever go. Like He took that on himself and he became those things in that moment. Everything vile you can think of, everything dark and filthy, unholy, demonic, like he became those things. The things that you read about on the news that just make your stomach turn. Like how could someone do, like he became that. And God, who is completely holy, like we talked about last week, and he's righteous. He, he didn't abandon his son, but his son felt abandoned in that moment. God had to look away from him because God cannot look at sin. Jesus became sin. He couldn't look at sin. And in the midst of this, Jesus cries out. He feels the separation from his father. And he says, God, why have you like walked out of me? Like, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Then they offered him that wine mixed with myrrh to try to numb the pain as just an act of mercy. And he refused it because he, he came to finish the job that his father asked him to do. And in the end, he declares, it is finished. And he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he gave his life for you and for me. And the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before this would ever happen, before it ever took place, he prophetically declared, what this child would endure on the behalf of our sinfulness. He continues, he says this, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and he had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal and he was put in a rich man's grave. By the way, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man and uh, they actually used, he offered up his grave to Jesus, one that was never used, another prophecy that was fulfilled right there. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he'll be satisfied. When 
he sees the result of his suffering for you and for me. He'll be satisfied. Job well done. And because of his experience, my righteous servant, because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. 700 years, prophet Isaiah predicts what would happen. And listen, he would take on your sin, my sin. He would take on your hurt. He would take on your bad habits. He would take on your hangups. He would take on all of this stuff so that you and I could be made whole. You see, the wise men, they brought myrrh. And they thought they were bringing something helpful. But in reality, they were bringing something prophetic. And they were saying that Jesus would be a person that would suffer and he would die so that we didn't have to suffer and we didn't have to die. In fact, here's what Jesus says about himself. He said, And the Son of Man, and it's talking about himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, all the religious people. He get rejected by the people that shouldn't be rejected. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must, notice he didn't say this, he didn't say, if you want to be my disciple, you must live your best life now. Oh, you must pray a prayer and you'll become rich and prosperous. No, you, you must do that. You must go to church. You must serve. You must, no, no, no. He didn't say any of that. He said, no, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves what you want, what you desire, what you think is right, what you think is okay. You have to, you have to deny that stuff and you have to take up your own cross daily and follow me. Listen, take up your cross and follow me. He endured this for you. He endured this for me, for your lies and my lies. He endured this for your lustfulness and my lustfulness, for your selfishness and my selfishness, your hypocrisy and my hypocrisy, for your greed and my greed, for your anger and my anger, for your unforgiveness and my unforgiveness, for your wicked heart and my wicked heart. There's no one in this room that's perfect. There's no one in this room that's got it all together. And listen, Jesus suffered all of this so that he could take your place in all that. That means this, I want y'all to listen to me. Ben, y'all can come back up, worship team. That means if you've cheated, he was pierced for the adultery that you committed. If you're struggling with your body and you need healing today, he was whipped so that you could be healed. I believe that. If you've lost a loved one, if your kids walked away and you're struggling, he was crushed for your comfort. He did these things so that you could be made whole. He did these things so that you didn't have to suffer alone. He did, he did these things to cover the wrongs that you've done. He did these things so you don't have to feel shame about your past. 
You don't have to feel guilt about your past. He did this so that your marriage could be good and whole and great. He did this so that you could be a godly dad and a godly mom to your kids. He did this so you can find healing in your body. He did this for you. He was broken so that we could be made whole. The suffering servant, the Lamb of God that would come and take our place. And instead of us suffering these things, He did it for us. So I want us to just stand in this place today. Come on, in an attitude of worship, I want you to just stand. And maybe today there's something that you have been bearing, something that you have been holding on to, something that has been hurting you. And you need to just receive what Jesus has done. You see, he's already taken the punishment for the thing that you're experiencing right now. Maybe for some of you, man, you need some healing. Maybe for some of you, there's a relationship that needs to be rebuilt or restored. We're going to sing a song. It'll be a new song. But I want us just to respond with worship today. And Stephanie and I are down here. Man, if we can pray for you in any way. If you need healing, we'd love to pray for you. If your marriage is struggling, we'd love to pray for you. Like, we're here for you. We, we want to pray for you. You can come down. You can get prayer. But I think some of our response needs to be just recognizing what Jesus has done. But I want you to just bow your heads, close your eyes for a second. But some of you, you need to receive what Jesus has done. And you need to ask Jesus into your heart right now. Make him Lord of your life. Receive the thing that he did for you. And if that's you on the count of three, I just want to ask you just to raise your hand in here. And I'd love to just lead you in a time of prayer uh, that you can make that decision where you can say, God, I want to receive what you did for me and receive the greatest gift that's ever been given. That's you on the count of three. Just raise your hand. One, two, three. You can put your hand up. Great. All right, you can put it down. If that's you, just quietly in this moment in your heart, you can say, dear God, thank you for taking my place. Thank you for dying for me. I've messed up. And God, I ask you to forgive me. Would you come into my heart? And in the best way I know how, I will follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on. Hey, we're going to sing this song together. And if you need prayer, Stephanie and I are down here. We'd love to pray for you. But hey, just take this time to just respond to God in worship today. Come on, let's sing together.